it all right for me to be excited that the Phillies are in the World Series, the team I grew up with, even though I've been a resident of Cleveland now for 26 years? I hope so, because there's really not much excitement about Cleveland sports at the moment. <laughs> it's the today cast, in Ohio. The Cavs are yeah, going to be good. <laughs> we'll see. It's today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Atassi. I hope you all enjoyed the second beautiful weekend in a row in October. We thought the best weekends were in September, but we were wrong because we just had a couple of winners. I got go. paddleboarding. So, yes. Did you really? Yeah. Did you get wet? No. It was oh, calm and beautiful and totally still. It was like I could have been out there forever. It was gorgeous. See, there's no way if I go paddleboarding that I'm not getting wet. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have your sense of balance. Let's get going. We got some good news to talk about. Well, not good news, but interesting news. How many rapists have finally been caught after law enforcement stopped breaking the law and started collecting DNA from thousands of criminal suspects to be matched up with DNA from rape victims? Well, this is like part two of the project that you had done 10 years ago about testing rape kits to get the DNA of rapists. But you have to be able to match that up against other people. And that's what this one's about. Exactly. According to a Cleveland State University study published last month in the Journal of Forensic Sciences, in a seven-year span, nearly 15,000 suspects and offenders in Cuyahoga County should have been swabbed for DNA by criminal justice authorities, but they were not. So this study was funded by grants from the Department of Justice, and it was launched in 2016 in partnership with the Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Office. It analyzed arrest and conviction data from 2010 through 2016. And reporter John Tucker tells us that it marks the first major effort to identify people outside the prison system who lawfully owe their DNA. So the researchers were shocked by the breadth of this problem. They had anticipated that they would find thousands, but not this many thousands. And of course, it, it's the responsibility of the Cleveland police who should have been collecting this evidence as these guys were being booked on felony arrests. And we know the value of this. Entering DNA in the database tags these guys in the database um, in case they show up as suspects in future crimes. DNA also could work in their favor to rule them out as suspects, right? And and the DNA can help solve cold cases, some of which, you know, have gone unsolved for years until the right suspect's DNA profile hits the system. So 15,000 missed opportunities is really kind of devastating. Yeah, and we got to give a tip of the hat to our former colleague, Rachel DeSalle. She wrote a story about this in 2017 that really laid out the scope of the problem. It's taken a long time to get that action, but action indeed. There was a section of the story, though, Layla, that I'm conflicted by, and I'd be interested in hearing what the others say. They're, the public defender is in there saying, you know, they're taking that DNA from people who never get charged or get acquitted, right. and yet it's on file and could be used against them. Yeah. And I'm And I'm reading that, and I'm thinking, but... But if it's matched up against them because they commit later crimes, what's the big deal? I mean, th this to me is almost like having a ring doorbell camera that catches a crime. It's it's you know, if you commit your crime away from that, you get off scot free. But if you do it in front of it, they've got you. <laughs> you know, what what is the the harm of our DNA being stored? Because if you commit a crime, they can solve it almost immediately. Yeah, it's a good On point. the other hand. Go ahead. On the, but on the other hand, the, you know, DNA also reveals where you have medical vulnerabilities and bad people could use that against you to mm -hmm. deny you insurance. I just 
you know, what if they took DNA from everybody when they're born? What what's the harm of being able to match that up? If you committed a crime, all they're doing is saying, aha, we got you. Yeah. I mean, that's that's an excellent point. I mean, he, he was sort of making the larger issue that that we're treating non-criminals the same as we treat criminals when we add their DNA to this to this criminal database. Um, but but you're right that our DNA is kind of every, everywhere now. I'm sure that probably the, well, not Lisa, I bet, but the, <laughs> the nope. majority of us have added our DNA to the, you know, nope. to the DNA, you know, like, you know, 23andMe or whatever, GenMatch or what, all of those uh, databases out there to try to connect with, with uh, ancestors all over the globe. And, and we see more and more that, that uh, law enforcement are tapping into those to solve crimes. And those are full of innocent people. So uh, I think most people aren't that squeamish about this because mm -hmm. if you keep your hands clean, you shouldn't have any problem with your DNA being matched against those of criminals. I do worry about the use of it against you medically. You know, the J.D. Vances of the world would love to get their hands on this and then cast you as somehow inferior because you're vulnerable to genetic diseases or something. But Lisa, you're you're making noise like you have something to say. Oh, no. And I don't know if you heard the news out of Texas where they were wanting the state was wanting to give DNA identification kits to school children so they could identify them in case there was a shooting. And now they've backed off of that. Oh, no, we just wanted to keep kids safe. Well, what's next? Are we going to microchip every baby as soon as they're born? Yes, I mean, please. Actually, oh. that, <laughs> I would love what? to microchip my kids. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because I would feel so much more comfortable playing at parks. <laughs> I'm a psycho. I'm sorry. I think if kids go, <laughs> I do not agree with Layla. I'm just going to put that kids go there. missing. I think we could find them so fast if they were microchipped. I'm sorry. I just feel well, my that dog way. is microchipped. Exactly. Laura, is your dog is your dog microchipped, Laura? You know, I actually don't know the answer to that. My husband's the one that takes them to all the appointments. I should know that. I don't. Yeah, we did that because you know she's a great dog, and somebody would try and take her, so you wanted to be able to get her back. All right. Well, interesting. <laughs> uh, it, it, what the good news here is they're taking rapists off the street, which which we've been doing ever since the rape kit project of ten years ago. Uh, John Tucker's story really lays it out. It's a good piece. It's on Cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio. Gretchen Crowen published a story about long COVID over the weekend that contains all sorts of new details, offering some hope for treatment of this debilitating condition affecting millions of people. University Heights is a major player. Laura, I've been talking to Gretchen about this one for three weeks. I had huge anticipation for it. She delivered in a big way. This is great stuff. I know she told you something you didn't already know. Isn't that huge? <laughs> and just to be clear, it's University Hospitals, not University Heights. But I had no idea how many people have long COVID. It's up to a third of adults who have dealt with the virus. That's 16 to 19 million Americans. And one of the hubs of research on long COVID is right here at UH Case Medical Center and the Metro Health System. And they got one of 15 NIH grants awarded to research institutions around the country. And they have the largest number of research subjects. So they've got 800 patients enrolled already. They hope to add 300 to 400 more. So if you've recently had COVID, you can still join. And the idea is to uncover the biomarkers of the COVID disease, any sort of measurable biological change that could identify and separate out patients who had acute COVID infection and then continue to experience these COVID symptoms months later. Because these are people who are fatigued. They have all sorts of crazy symptoms that you wouldn't actually 
think of altogether, which is one reason that there are similarities to HIV. That was the first time I've ever heard that. Yeah, the virus, the virus isn't similar, but what, right, what, it, but does what it does to your body to get it, it gets into the organs and hides there. So it's hard to eradicate. And, and she described how there's three symptom groups. There's the neurological, there's the cardio. Um, and then I forget what the third one was. Um, and there's cardiovascular of, fatigue and neurocognitive. Yeah. And if it's neuro, neurological, they're saying that, you know, the virus might be hiding out in the brain. And if it's, it's cardio, car, the cardio area, it's hiding out there, but that actually offers hope for all these people people that are suffering from it, because if they know where it is, maybe they can go get rid of it using antivirals or other other methods. Right. And you could have more than one group of symptoms. Plus, there are things that don't necessarily fit into those three, like constipation, diarrhea, loss of taste and smell, which is, I mean, to deal with that long term, that's really difficult. One thing is COVID, um, the, sim- the people in this research project are primarily women, 75%. And so that's not by choice. It seems to affect women more long COVID. And uh, while your risk of developing long COVID increases with severity of the initial infection, people can develop long COVID even if you were asymptomatic. So you might not not have even known you had COVID, but then you could have long COVID. But the most, one of the most important things in the story is, is that people who are fully vaccinated have the lowest chance of getting long COVID. So if you haven't gotten the I'm going to mispronounce this bivalent vaccine, which protects against the latest versions of Omicron. You should, because that's the best way to avoid getting long COVID. The quote in the story that stood out, it was, I'm not really afraid of getting COVID. I don't want to get long COVID. And that that seems to be the, the feeling that's rising from it. Great story by Gretchen. She says she'll be pulling out different parts of this to explore even deeper in the weeks ahead. Um, it takes something special to take this kind of complicated information and make it so darned interesting. And she nailed it. It's today in Ohio. News comes at a regular clip about new flights into Cleveland, but that news masks just how crippling the pandemic was for the airline industry serving Cleveland. Travel editor Susan Glazer examined where we stand and found our situation wanting. Lisa, let's put it into perspective with the numbers. Yeah, the numbers are kind of interesting given the fact that, you know, after the pandemic, everybody had to travel and it was chaos at most national airports. But at Hopkins International Airport through September 30th, seat capacity is down 11% compared to 2019 pre-pandemic era. Flight numbers are also down 24%. um, And we've also lost several nonstop destinations over the last couple years or so about 12. Southwest Airlines halted service to Milwaukee. Delta no longer flies from Hopkins to Salt Lake or Hartford, Connecticut. Frontier cut San Diego and Austin nonstops. Allegiant, when it moved to Akron-Canton Airport, it took Savannah, Charleston, Jacksonville, and Norfolk, Virginia nonstops along with it. Now, we did see some seats added. So Frontier's seats, they added about 7.5% more seats. American Airlines, they also added about 6% more seats. And Spirit added a Miami flight, and they're adding more capacity to Orlando, Tampa, and Fort Lauderdale in Florida. But seats were also cut. I mean, Southwest cut 36% of their seats across all destinations, JetBlue down 45%, Delta down 18% in seat 
capacity, United Airlines down 11%. And we've added a few new destinations, like you said, Chris, but not too many. I mean, Alaska Air is doing a daily nonstop to Seattle. United added a flight to Nassau, Bahamas, but that's on hiatus until spring. And then we've got Aer Lingus that's going to give us a nonstop to Dublin in May of next year. So yeah, it's quite imbalanced and kind of a surprise. Yeah, I I think this would be more troubling if we thought it was about the economy, but it's kind of like cars, right? Where the car sales are at the lowest they've been in a long time, but it's because there are no cars because of shortages of supplies and ships. If you talk to people in the airline industry, there just aren't enough people Mm -hmm. to staff the planes. And so there's been a reduction in flights because of of the, the supply. There aren't enough planes that you can't get enough people. Uh, I just I had no idea it was that bad until I read Susan's story. Uh, it'll be interesting to see as the economy, if we get into a recession like is predicted and more people are into the workplace, will this somehow balance out a little more? You know, and I, I honestly, I don't think things have been great since United, you know, pulled its hub out of Hopkins, to be quite honest. I mean, is any airline is a Hopkins a hub for any airline now? No, 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 that was it. No, things deteriorated a lot. What we got were a lot of the low-cost airlines to take you to Disney World. But with with United leaving, we did lose a lot of connections to other cities. It's a good story. It's on Cleveland.com, and you are listening to Today in Ohio. With great fanfare, Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb marched into municipal court earlier this year with reporters in tow to dramatically file papers to expunge 4,000 low-level marijuana convictions. We soon reported, though, on legal complications of that maneuver. Layla, what's the latest on this egg-on-his-honor's-face story? Well, yeah, last week, the city filed notices in Cleveland Muni Court to withdraw its motions to remove from residents' records minor misdemeanor marijuana possession charges dating back to 2017. Back in April... They tried to do this, and then shortly afterward, like you said, the Ohio Supreme Court's Board of Professional Conduct notified them that only an individual can file a motion to seal or expunge their own records, that it would be improper for the city to just unilaterally do that without without the person's knowledge that they're being represented in a case. In May, the city then filed superseding motions that tried to vacate convictions and dismiss charges. They thought they tried that way instead, um, instead of expunging or sealing them. And that would have left it up to the muni court judges to decide to grant the request, but apparently that didn't work either. So now they finally withdrew withdrew their motions, but the city still wants to help people clear their names. So they're sending out letters to convince those people who are eligible to have their charges expunged or sealed. It's, uh, you know, the officials are, are urging residents to use the Muni Court website to start those proceedings. And they're sending out all the information about how to do that. And and also, interestingly, um, the city um, reached out to those in the cannabis industry and those working for cannabis reform for ideas on how to get information out. <laughs> I thought that was an interesting detail. Well, I, I it's interesting that this was one of the first things he did. It was a big fanfare, trying to show things are different. 
but he didn't do the homework. He didn't do the work to make sure he was okay. I'm, I'm sure Blaine Griffin really wishes he weren't in that photo. Now I know. I saw that photo again this morning of, of them walking out of the elevator with the boxes that just say yeah. expungement or something across them. And it's such a stunt. And I, Blaine's face in the background looks like, ugh. <laughs> you know, yeah, but now, doesn't but it? Now, He's like, oh, why it, am I? <laughs> yeah. But it was a failed stunt. And so you wonder whether or when this administration is going to get some legs. We've talked about some distressing developments with this administration. The fact that Bib didn't talk to, to Eric Gordon for eight months about the future of the education system, leading to Gordon deciding to call it quits at the end of this school year. I just, where's the big ideas that are fully thought out? Or maybe he's been working on them. Maybe he's going to surprise us. But this was a big push and it is an abject failure. And if they would have done a little bit more work, they would have realized they couldn't do what they were trying to do, which we figured out, right? We did the story within what, a week? Right, right. Yeah, you're right. So it's today in Ohio. If the Cleveland Planning Commission thinks the plans for the Cleveland Clinic's proposed 14-story Neurology Institute stink, which the Planning Commission does think, why did they give early-stage schematics a thumbs up? Why doesn't the commission like this design, Laura? It's a very good question, and I don't have an answer to why they didn't reject the plan other than these are early schematics and they're hoping they improve. Because the criticism is all about the building's inward focus. It's not inviting to the neighborhood beyond it. And the members of the Planning Commission hope this is corrected before they come back for final approval. This is a building uh, for neurology to be located on the north side of Carnegie Avenue between 89th and 90th Street. This is part of the clinic's $1.3 billion initiative to add buildings basically everywhere it has campuses. Um, The clinic didn't respond to the criticism during the meeting. Afterwards, Steve Litt reached out and they said they sent an email that said they continually seek feedback from local leaders and residents to determine how our organization may contribute. The feedback is given significant consideration and implemented into our expansion plans. As part of our commitment to the communities we serve, we are working to develop a mixed-use space on our campus as well as accessible pathways for community use. That's a lot of the word of community. But when they bought the playhouse, the old Cleveland playhouse, that was part of the the promise, right? That they weren't going to be this fortress in the neighborhood, that they were going to have uh, more manageable buildings that worked with the streets. And we have yet to see that. No, it is a fortress. Anybody who drives through there, it's one of the most forbidding places mm-hmm. around. It's designed so that people never have to step foot right. outside. There's tunnels yeah. and uh, there's uh, bridges. bridges and tunnels. I mean, that's not to say some people don't wander around on the sidewalks, but it is not a welcoming place at all. It doesn't, it, there's no place to easily sit outside and, have something to eat. It's it's really, it does seem like it's intended to say, yes, there's this big building in the middle of this neighborhood. Stay out of it. If uh, I, and, go ahead. No, I, if I could offer my perspective, I worked in one of the largest medical centers in the, in the nation in Houston for 17 years. And when you drive down Carnegie, it's like you're driving in a, sh- in, in a canyon. These buildings, you know, create 
all the shade. There's no benches to sit. The Texas Medical Center, the, all the buildings are set back from the street. There's a strip of grass between the sidewalk and the, and the facility. There are benches all along the sidewalk. I mean, it, it's a, it was a welcoming place to work and, and to go and be treated. And here you're just like in this, you know, canyon, dark canyon. Well, and well, the few times I've even been in the buildings, I'm incredibly intimidated because it's like, I don't know which parking garage to park in or which bridge to take into which building or which building I'm in once I'm inside of it. I would think it would actually be helpful to patients to have distinct buildings where you you know which one is which mm-hmm. and you could walk in from the street. Right. But, I want to say what one member of the planning commission said, there are so many missed opportunities where you could actually extend the cafe into green space and create something outside the four walls of this building. You elevate a garden that quite frankly is insulting to me as a resident of 82nd and Euclid down the street from your institution, Mm -hmm. because I can see it, but it's not for me. It's not for the community. So there's, there's an elevated garden. Only if you're in the building, can you access the garden? And none of their buildings are notable. Compare this to what Metro Health's doing. It's not just that they're built; they, they're about to open their new building. They included an entire park as part of it. There's a big park mm-hmm. out front. So they want people to come. They want it to be a place where the community feels welcome. It's just so night and day different. And they've added the like community housing, it. right? The part of the Metro plan is all of these different services and and places to go for help. I mean, I know I realize it's a different model of healthcare, but yeah, it's striking. So why didn't they just vote no and say, no, start over, do it again. We're not going to let one you. One person pick- voted no, but it was a four to one vote, I believe. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't have an answer for you, Chris. They were very clear in their criticism and they hope it gets better, but I don't know why you don't send it back early and say, get it better and then we'll approve it. Yeah, I agree. It's today in Ohio. All right, Lisa, we're going to look to you to close out our discussion of the Guardians for this year. (laughs) Was Bob Costas dissing our beloved Guardians announcer, Tom Hamilton, when Costas tried to explain he was not a ridiculous homer for the Yankees when he was calling the playoff games? Or was Costas actually showing Hamilton some love? I don't know if he was or not, because it's almost started out as an insult. But Bob Costas, as you know, called the, you know, the ALDS series. And yes, I heard several things of Yankee bias. You know, he even at one game, I think it was game four, he was already saying that the Yankees were going to move on to this championship series. And I thought, wow, okay. But he said when he was asked about his Yankees bias, he says, well, to quote in quote, to be concise, it's idiocy. He says it's only from people who, who those who think that objectivity is Tom Hamilton's call. Is that an insult? I don't know. But then later on, Costas went on to praise Hamilton, said he's great and should go into the Hall of Fame for broadcasters, blah, blah, blah. Uh, maybe just trying to soften the blow a little bit. But Costas says his job is to provide storylines that are relatable to the casual fan. And yeah, he's got a lot of history. I mean, he's been a sports you know caster for a long time. He knows a lot of history. He wants to bring up the history. He talked about uh, Aaron Boone, the general manager, quite a bit. And every time Aaron Judge came up to bat, they had to talk about that. But Costa says, newsflash, with some exceptions, network announcers want good games and good events. But all I can say is that better him than Joe Buck, because Joe Buck is an 
unabashed fan of the Yankees and shows it in his sports casting. So, well, and as I said at the top of the podcast, the Phillies are in the World Series. The Yankees got swept. Nana, nana, boo, boo. Everybody that hates the Yankees was doing high fives. They got swept. Oh, for four. Don't you love when the Yankees suffer? It's today in Ohio. Our Saving You Money columnist, Sean McDonald, had to get glasses for the first time, and he explored how to do it as cheaply as possible. Layla, how did he do? Well, he figured out that the eye center chain America's Best is probably the best deal for the eye exam glasses combo. I agree with him. Been wearing my America's Best for like 10 years. <laughs> They're still going strong. They advertised two pair in the exam for 80 bucks, though Sean realized quickly that you can only get their cheapest pairs for that price. So, you know, his true price was closer to 100 he said, without any of the protective coatings and bells and whistles. Still, just an eye exam would have cost him about $75 at other places. And according to Consumer Reports, the median price for a pair of glasses online is $91 compared to $234 for a pair bought in store in some places. So Sean included all the information that you would need to compare those online sites like Warby Parker, Zenny Optical, and iBuyDirect in, in terms of cost and whether they let you try before you buy and all that stuff. So you can find that all in Cleveland.com. Very useful uh, comparison story there. I, I, I do wonder, and I know eye doctors will tell you this, do you get the same quality? Is it, do you, you know, is the focus point in the right spot on the lenses or do you accept some variation of quality to save that well, money? Well, he pointed out in his story that you need to have those measurements very precise when you're ordering online. And sometimes, you know, his, his prescription included it. So he was able, you know, he if he decided to order online, he could precisely include it. But if you don't, you need to do that measurement on your own, I guess. And well, ugh. can I add in here? So I just ordered my first pair of glasses online for my daughter after she busted hers playing goalie in soccer. It was the third time she's broken a pair of glasses in two years. And I was like, okay. So I ordered these Rochambeau baby ones that are bendy. Like you could run them over with a car and probably not break the frames. So we actually measured her eyes. They, they have like like a camera on their website and you hold up like basically a credit card size above your eyes. So it knows the sizing and it, it guessed her whatever measurement she got the glasses two weeks later, which is faster than the ones we ordered in store. And she's incredibly happy with her sparkly pink glittery, uh, bendy glasses. Great. We got the same kind of thing for my daughter a long, long time ago. She went through glasses like crazy. Kids and glasses, not a good combination. <laughs> Laura, will your daughter eventually get contacts? Yes, I wanted her to get contacts, but the eye doctor was not ready for that yet because she's nine. Yeah, we're the only species that actually takes our hands and puts them into our <laughs> eyeballs. I'm never going to understand the whole contact thing. It's today in Ohio. We have escaped the flu for the past two years, largely because people were taking care to avoid COVID. But experts say this year the flu is coming in big. Lisa, how bad is it expected to be? Well, it's supposed to be tougher than the 2020 and 2021 seasons. And actually, though, it's actually closer to typical pre-pandemic flu levels. Why? Because... In 2021, we were masking and social distancing and hand washing, and all of those activities are all way, way down. Um, they're expected to have 40 flu deaths and 2,000 hospitalizations in Cuyahoga County, and that's 
compared to just a single flu death in 2021-2022 season. They say that immunity may also be lower due to to, to decreased exposure to the virus. You know, 30% is typical and decreased flu shots. But they say that a twindemic with COVID and flu peaking at the same time is unlikely this winter. They're not expecting any overlap in peak virus activity between the two diseases. And they're saying that this year's flu shot, it's not always a good match because they have to guess what the dominant virus is going to be or the dominant strain. But they say this year's flu shot is a good match for the virus and should be effective. And pointing out that you can get your COVID booster and your flu shot at the same time and in the same arm like I did and mostly get, you know, don't get charged. And if you're 65 and over, there is a stronger dose available for the flu. I got that for the first time this year. Huh. And yeah, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, and so and and they did, said you might have some symptoms, which I did not because it is a stronger version. But I have to point out that respiratory syncytial virus is raging through the nation and Cleveland right now. So oh. UH Rainbow Babies and Children's is you know they've their beds are very low at this point. They were on drive-by status about a month ago, and RSV is showing up about two months earlier than they expected. Nothing worse than that with kids. Mm-hmm. Oh goodness. Mm-hmm toddler with RSV. Goodness. So Lisa, you said that flu shots are down. Do do we think that that's because of all the controversy about the coronavirus vaccine and how that became a right versus left issue? Or is it because flu hasn't been around, people just don't feel threatened by it anymore? I think it's probably a combination of factors and people maybe weren't getting inoculated at all because they were staying home and figure if they stayed home, they'd be safe from the flu. So it could be a combination of those things. All right. I got the flu shot. Lisa got the flu shot. Laura, Layla, did you get the flu shot? Scheduling today. You're getting it today? Yeah. All right. So that's four for four. So we're leading by example. That's good. (laughs) I hope if you're listening to this, you go get the flu shot and go get the the, uh, coronavirus vaccine because it's a winner and you might not get long COVID. It's today in Ohio. We're not going to get to our last story. That's it for a Monday. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back Tuesday for another discussion of the news.